Thank you, Marty. Fellow students, if you would open uh, your Bibles to the book of Balachi. Um, it's the Italian prophet, the last one in the Old Testament, in the Old Covenant, Malachi. Uh, Malachi is a book of transition. He really looks back. He's the last prophet in the Old Testament, and yet Malachi spends a fair amount of time looking forward to the New Testament. The book of the name Malachi means literally my messenger, my messenger. So if you name your child Malachi, it means that messenger, my messenger at that point. He delivered God's message to God's people, and by and large, it was a fairly uncomfortable message. But he does spend an interesting amount of time prophesying about the messenger in the New Testament, which was John the Baptist, the forerunner of the King of Kings, Jesus Christ. Malachi 3.1, Malachi actually says, Behold, I am going to send my messenger before my face, and he will clear the way before me. The Lord whom you seek will suddenly come into his temple, and the messenger of the covenant in whom ye delight, behold, he will come. So Malachi, my messenger, is taking God's message about Jesus Christ's way preparer, forerunner, John the Baptist. It's interesting use of that word. Let me give you a little bit of historical timeline about what, when this took place. You'll see a bit of a timeline on, on, on the whiteboard behind me. In about 539 B.C., Cyrus the Great issued an edict that says the Jews can go back to the land. Now, they had been in the land of Babylon slash Persia for 70 years based on repeated disobedience. Cyrus the Great, as prophesied in Isaiah 150 years before, said now's the time, 539, you can go back home. About 50,000 Jews left uh, Persia and went back to the land under Zerubbabel, and that's, of course, recorded in, in, in Ezra. About uh, 40 years, well, I guess about 27 years after that, they finally finished the temple. We talked about that a couple weeks ago, that they had been delaying and delaying, and the book of Haggai told them, get on with it, finish the temple up. They got that done about 516. About 60 years after the initial exodus uh, from Persia back home, uh, 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 Ezra comes, and you'll see this recorded in Ezra 1, 2, and 3. He comes and begins to inform the people regarding what God's plan, God's desire, God's law is for them, and they're already backslidden fairly strongly. 445 B.C., Nehemiah comes. So he shows up about roughly 13 years after Ezra comes. Nehemiah stays for 12 years. So when you read the book of Nehemiah, the first 10-ish chapters are the first 12 years. They rebuilt the walls in 52 days. Nehemiah then goes back to Persia because Nehemiah's got executive business to take care of. He was the cupbearer to the king, which was almost like the chief advisor, if you will, at that point in time. So Nehemiah goes back about 433, and he comes back a second time in 424. So between 433 and 424 is when Malachi is prophesying and operating the ministry that God gave him, and he gives him these number of chapters for us at this point in time. So just to put it in the big picture, Babylon had fallen to Persia in about 539. That's about 100 years before Malachi. Persia is going to fall to Greece in about 330. That's about 100 years after Malachi. So the Persian Empire starts in 539, they conquer Babylon. A hundred years after the Persian Empire reaches its ascendancy, Malachi prophesies. A hundred years after Malachi prophesies, the Persian Empire gets theirs because this young general, Alexander the Great, comes along and cleans their clock. 
So just kind of give you a perspective on how this works. The situation in Jerusalem when Malachi was written was really, really discouraging. Uh, there were only about 100,000 Jews in the land. This is 100 years after they initially came. There's only about 100,000 folks in the land. They were living in fairly substandard housing. We're talking huts, pretty flimsy houses, unprotected from the weather. They didn't have a big enough army to protect them from any sort of attack at all. They were very vulnerable. Their economy was a mess. They had been back in the land 100 years because they had believed God that he was going to restore them to the land, and they thought God had forgotten them because their life was not very productive, very prosperous. It was very discouraging and very, very poor. So complacency had set in, corruption was epidemic, and they began to really fall back. They rejected God's law. They didn't say, God, uh, we're not going to follow your law. They just neglected him. They just neglected God. Bribes were pretty common. There was a lot of social injustice. You think we got problem with economic inequality? It was a massive problem back then. And they were worshiping God, but they were just kind of going through the motions. They had very, very corrupt leadership. In essence, and this is a very, very strong lesson for us, they had been back in the land for about a century, and they were morally worse off now than they were before they went into captivity. Here's the part that is just amazing to me. How soon we forget the lessons that we're supposed to learn, right? You think to yourself, oh, you've been there for 70 years. I mean, how much would it take to teach you the lesson that it's, it's obedience is what God has in mind and this is something you should do? I was thinking about this and it's very, very easy to be, get on our self-righteous high horse and go, man, if I'd been in captivity for 70 years, I certainly would not forget the lessons. And yet I look at the morality available in this country prior to World War II, with the, the Great Depression and World War II, the two chief shaping forces in the American psyche in the 20th century, the Depression and World War II, and I look at the moral decay in the last 70 years. It's only been 70 years. So we are morally where Israel was when Malachi was prophesying. It's interesting, the people in Malachi's day, when you read this book, are exactly like contemporary people in our culture today. They wanted to bring God down from his throne to their level. They wanted to subject him to human standards and human accountability. It's interesting, the same time Malachi was working, Protagoras, the Greek philosopher, lived between 490 and 420, a little before this. He said, uh, one of his famous comments was, man is the measure of all things. Man is the measure of all things. In essence, God, I'm going to judge you. I'm going to hold you accountable to my standard of understanding. Truth is very subjective and truth is very individual. How many have you heard this today? Well, it might be true for you, but it's not true for me, right? It's not true for me unless I say it's true for me. So truth is very individual and very, very subjective. It's not objective. You know, that kind of philosophy makes for interesting metaphysics, but it doesn't work really well at stoplights. It's not a red light to me unless I say it's a red light for me. <clears throat> you know, somebody better call 9-11. 
911. Bad things are going to happen. See, you can educate ignorance, but you can't educate willful ignorance. Malachi has been called the Hebrew Socrates. When you read this book, you are overwhelmed with the number of questions and answers in this book. It is very much a dialogue format that he uses to convey God's truth to God's people. There are 55 verses in this book, only 55. And 47 out of the 55 are, are verses that are directly spoken by God to the people. You will never see that concentration anywhere else in Scripture. 47 out of 55 verses are from God directly. Obviously, God's got a lot to say. Unfortunately, Israel's not interested in hearing what God has to say. You ever been in the conversation where you got the distinct impression the other person didn't believe what you were saying was true? Yeah, I did. Yeah, everybody's got at least one of those. Maybe it was your children. Maybe it was your spouse. Maybe you were talking to yourself in the mirror and you said, I'm not very convincing today, right? So there are, it's interesting, the seven being the number of completion. Seven times in this book, seven times in the book of Malachi, God makes a statement about Israel. God makes an affirmation about Israel. And seven times Israel disputes that statement. Israel disbelieves God. Israel demands that God prove it. And God has to prove it, according to them. God then, in response to that, bring evidence to prove his point. So Israel, in essence, seven times tells God, we don't believe you. It's not that bad. The key word that you need to underline in this book when you see it is the word how. The word how. I'm going to run through these real quick. Get a pen out. You just want to mark the verses. You don't need to mark anything else at this point. Chapter 1, verse 2. God's statement is, I have loved you. Chapter 1, verse 2. And the people say, how have you loved us? In other words, we don't believe you. Prove it. Bring the evidence that you've loved us. Demonstrate it. Chapter 1, verse 6. God says, it is you, O priests, who despise my name. And the priests say in 1 verse 6, How have we despised your name? you got to be kidding. Chapter 1 verse 7, God says, You are presenting defiled food on my altar. And the priests retort, How have we defiled you? Chapter 2 verse 17. Chapter 2 17, God says, You have wearied me with your words. Too many words. The people reply, how have we wearied him? Chapter 3, verse 7. Chapter 3, 7. God says, return to me and I will return to you. And the people respond, how shall we return? Chapter 3, verse 8. God says, will a man rob God? You are robbing me. And the people reply, how have we robbed you? Chapter 3, 13. Your words have, er have been arrogant against me. Chapter 3, 13. The people say, what have we spoken against you? In every case, <clears throat> Israel rejects what God has a statement about them. They don't get it. It's almost like uh, an insensitive partner in a marriage relationship. You ever talk to two people? Marriage. One spouse says, everything's great. Man, we are doing fine, no problems, it's all good, I'm a happy camper. You talk to the other spouse, 
and they say, it's really rotten. My spouse doesn't listen to me. We don't ever have an intimate conversation. They really don't know what I'm dealing with. They're so busy, they don't care enough to find out. I'm really unhappy. And you say, you live in the same house? <laughs> right? right? I mean, I assume you live in the same house. If you're not living in the same house, I could get it. But you're living together. Oh, yeah, yeah. Talk to them all the time. This is Israel and God. Israel's relationship to God. They were very indifferent to God's love and care for them. A number of years ago, uh, Mason Williams wrote a, a bluegrass tune back in the day that kind of reflects this attitude. The chorus line, I listened to John Denver do it on YouTube, really interesting. Back in the day, you know, when he had the bangs and the granny glasses. The chorus line of this tune goes, you done stomped on my heart and mashed that sucker flat. <laughs> you just kind of sort of stomped on my aorta. So aorta is your heart. You know, I mean, the, the main inline, the, the, yeah, stomped on my order. It, it's interesting that much of, um, I was going to say much of country music or much of what passes for country music or what much of music reflects unrequited love. You know, it's always the uh, between people, I love them, they didn't love me, etc. This book really, really is about God's unrequited love for Israel and even for us today. Here's the key idea. God deserves our best because of who he is. God deserves our best because of who he is. Key question, how well do you know God? I, was gonna, I should have said, how well do you know your God? Because if you know Jesus, you belong to him and he belongs to you. Let's dive in. Chapter 1, verse 1. The oracle of the word of the Lord to Israel through Malachi. Now, oracle... Anytime you see oracle written in the Minor Prophets, it means heavy burden. Someone says, I've got an oracle. It means it's, it, this is not sweetness and light. This is like a dark cloud hanging over your head. This was not going to be a happy, sweet message when a prophet came to you and said, I have an oracle from God. It wasn't going to be, don't worry, be happy. It was heavy, heavy hangs over your head. You need to make some changes in your life at that point in time. It was going to be a very, very heavy message. In verse 2... God's opening words to Israel are what? That's a pretty good opening line, wouldn't you say? God says, from my perspective, I love you. He doesn't begin by chastising them for their waywardness. He doesn't open the conversation by saying, you got to make some changes or I'm going to whack you. He says, I love you. Now, the, the verb there is continuous present, which means... I have loved you in the past, I am loving you in the present, and I will love you forever in the future. So it, it's not, I have loved you, meaning past tense, and I don't today. It says, I've loved you in the past and in the present, and I will love you forever in the future. This is the character of God on display, unconditional love for his chosen people. However, Israel is very apathetic and very antagonistic toward God, and they say, when someone says, I love you, and the next words out of your mouth are, how have you loved me? This is really good for the relationship, right? I mean, what would you expect? I love you too. I mean, that would be normal, whether you mean it or not. Many people lie when they say that. I love you too. It's like, well, if it was so good, how come you didn't start it on your own? Why do you got to wait for me to begin it, right? But they say, prove it. How have you loved us? In other words, show us you've loved us. We don't believe you. Here's the implication. You might want to write this one down. 
God, we deserve much better treatment from you than we have been receiving. Have you ever had that conversation with God? God, you say you love me, but my life sucks. Pardon me, I hate that word, but I use that because it's, some, sometimes it really does. Sometimes life is very, very hard and it's really hurtful. And we say, God, if this is love, love me less. I've had that conversation with the Lord before. When Caleb was younger, he used to ask me for stuff. Sometimes it was inappropriate and outrageous, and I would tell him no. At least half the time he'd say, Dad, you don't love me. I'd say, no, because I love you, I'm saying no. I, I can't tell you how many times I've said that. God tells Brad that today all the time. Because I love you, Brad, the answer is no. You know, we don't like to hear that, do we? We don't like to hear that. If you loved me, you would let me have my way. No. Here's the principle. Never confuse God's love with getting your own way. God loves you more than you love you. If we think that love means getting our own way, it just means that God is going to abandon us to our own will, and that's not love. Any more than loving your three-year-old by letting them ride their trike in the street is. So God's now going to demonstrate to Israel that he loves them. Verse 3. Was not Esau Jacob's brother, declared the Lord? Yet I have loved Jacob, but I have hated Esau, and I have made his mountains a desolation and appointed his inheritance for the jackals of the wilderness. God says, you want proof that I loved you? You got it. 1,500 years ago, before you were born, I chose your forefather Jacob. I chose him. And before that, I chose your father Abraham and took him out of the year of the Chaldees and adopted him into my family and made him my first, uh, uh, he was the first Jew, obviously. Centuries before you were born, people of Malachi's day, I chose to demonstrate my love to your ancestors in Egypt, in the wilderness, in the land of Canaan. Read the book of Exodus. How many times was God faithful? Over and over and over. You know, if I was God, I'd have sent a lightning bolt on those people way earlier. Way, and you would have too. Of course, if you'd have been there, you'd have said, oh, you know, wait, 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 right, same thing. God says, if I hadn't have brought your children, your, your parents out of the land of Egypt into the promised land, you wouldn't even be here today. As a matter of fact, if 100 years ago I hadn't stirred up Cyrus to give you permission to come back to the land, you wouldn't be here. You'd still be in captivity. How many ways do you want me to prove I've loved you? I've only been doing it for centuries, right? God obviously is documenting his love. He says, I'm showing my love for you by protecting you from your enemies. Verse 4. Edom had been a historical enemy of Israel. Historical, very wicked people. Edom says, we have been beaten down, but we will return. And we will build up the ruins. Thus says the Lord of hosts. Edom may rebuild, but I, God, will tear down, and men will call them the wicked territory and the people toward whom the Lord is indignant forever. Your eyes will see this, and you will say, The Lord be magnified beyond the order of Israel. God is saying, I loved you, and one of the ways I've demonstrated my love to you is protected you from your enemies. The people who tried to destroy you, I've destroyed. You will see how I work through history, and you will see that I'm reigning over all the earth at that point in time. You know, the truth of it is, every one of us here in this room are here because of the prior love of God, right? How did you receive the faith? Somebody led you to Christ, right? You know something? Somebody led that person to Christ. Somebody led that person to Christ. Somebody led that person to Christ. And you can track 
the bloodline of Jesus centuries and centuries before you were born. Somebody was faithful. And that somebody is God. You're here because prior generations responded to God's grace. And you know something, if the Lord tarries 100 years from now, I hope your tribe has millions of people in it because you were faithful to transmit the truth of the grace of God. That's what he's saying. He said, this is not all about you. I've been active loving you by loving your forebears for generations. And I want to take that same love and transmit it down to future generations after you at that point of time. We're here today only because God has chosen to love us before we were born. Israel had forgotten that. God says in verse 6, a son honors his father. That's normal, right? A servant honors his master, employer-employee relationships. Then if I am a father, where is my honor? And if I am a master, where is my respect, says the Lord of hosts? O priests who despise my name. Roddy Dangerfield uh, had a famous line. I don't get no respect. He stole that line from God. God don't get no respect. That's really true in our culture today, isn't it? God don't get no respect. It's, it's intriguing to me. It's, it's more than intriguing. In our culture, praying in Jesus' name is barely tolerated, but cursing uses Jesus' name as normal and acceptable. How can that be? Because we live in a culture like Malachi's. Actually, it's actually worse. Now, when God says, you priests despise my name, that's a very, very strong term. The word despise means to detest. It means to loathe. It means to scorn. It means to utterly reject. It means to throw up. You just hate it. You just despise it, right? God's telling these priests, you treat me like scum. You treat me like the garbage you throw out. Pretty strong statement. When Israel hears God's statement, they're very offended. They're very offended by God's charge, and they deny it, and they demand proof, and they say, how have we despised your name? Prove it. God tells them in verse 7. You are presenting defiled food on my altar, but you say, how have we defiled you? I would have said, duh. That would have been my, right there, I would have said, how have we defiled you, duh? In that you say the table of the Lord is to be despised. Verse 8, but when you present the blind for sacrifice, is it not evil? And when you present the lame and the sick, is it not evil? Will he be pleased with you? Oh, why not offer it to your governor? Would he be pleased with you? Or would he receive you kindly, says the Lord of hosts? Here's the principle. When you give God what costs you little or nothing you are telling God he is worth little or nothing. When you give God what costs you little or nothing, you are telling God that he is worth little or nothing. Here's a word picture. Back in the 70s, <clears throat> uh, both Jimmy Carter and the president of France, I think it was d'Estaing, would occasionally have dinner at a common citizen's home. It was kind of a random choice. You know, they would do a random selection, and they'd actually, the president would come to your home and have dinner. Just a common citizen, and I'm, of course, the interesting question is, suppose they were going to come to your house for dinner, president of the United States. How would you prepare for their visit? I'm thinking that if the president of the United States was coming to your house for dinner, you would serve them um, leftovers. 
microwaved on paper plates in your dirty jeans and stinky t-shirt. You would have dinner while staring at your smartphone or TV screen and you would belch out loud just like you do at home and eat alone, right? I know you. You would tell them to heat up their own food, get their own drink out of the fridge, and please stop making your dog bark because it's really annoying. I mean, you can always serve the president leftovers, right? Right? This is how the priests were treating God. God had commanded them to bring only what? Unblemished lambs. Perfect lambs to be brought for sacrifice because God is completely and perfectly holy and man is perfectly and completely sinful. And there is an unbridgeable gap between holy God and sinful man. And if you were going to bring a sacrifice, it needed to be perfect because you had a perfect God. You were saying that God is holy enough to deserve your very best, the perfect sacrifice. When you brought a defective lamb for your sins, you were saying that God is not holy enough and doesn't deserve my best. He doesn't deserve an unblemished lamb. In other words, we're bringing God down to human level again, aren't we? Right? You were also saying, when you bring God a defective lamb or defective sacrifice or a cheap gift, my sins aren't all that bad. Right? I mean, a defective lamb is payment enough. Why would I give God the best? Right? Why not? You know, I'm not that bad. I mean, a used lamb is okay. When I was thinking about this. How many of you ever saw the movie Secondhand Lions? Yeah, interesting. Kid says, it's a secondhand lion. I mean, the thing's old. You know, I paid for a, a really first-rate lion. Something's in good shape, and this lion can't hardly even walk. That, that occurred to me. I thought, you know, how often do we bring secondhand lions to the altar? What was really going on, here's what would happen. A person would want to sacrifice to God for their sins, a conscientious person. They would bring a perfect lamb for the sacrifice. And the priests would say, wow, why would we kill a perfectly good lamb and burn it up on that altar? You know, God knows we're living in a tough economy. We can sell this perfect lamb for a premium price in the open market. We'll sacrifice this blind, lame, sick one over here, one that we can't sell. I mean, this is just pure economics, right? It's a tough economy. I mean, they had a good justification, right? Or, at least as bad, someone else would bring an old, sick, tired, diseased lamb, and the priest would excuse it, and they'd say, hey, no worries, no worries. It's going to die anyway, right? You can't eat it. It's sick. It's diseased. You can't sell it for hardly anything. So just sacrifice this de defective lamb. Keep the good lambs for yourself, and God will understand. Not. God says in verse 8, you think this is such a good idea? Go to your Persian governor and give him one of your sick, old, gnarly, diseased, nearly dead lambs. Find out if he likes that for dinner. The implication being, if you're going to do this, for you wouldn't do it for an earthly governor, how could you do it to the king of kings? How could you do it to the Lord of the universe? Do you think he's going to be pleased with that? Interesting question. Have you ever been re-gifted? You know what I'm talking about? Ever gotten a gift that you knew was given to somebody else first <clears throat> and they didn't want it, so they just rewrapped it and pretended that they had picked it out just for you because you're so special, right? 
And you knew on one level they just wanted to dump it. They wanted to get rid of it and you happened to be the next one in line. How does it make you feel? Does it make you feel special? Really important? Really valued? How do you think God felt when the priests gave him the worthless lambs that no one else wanted? He says in verse 9, But now will you entreat God's favor that he may be gracious to you? With such an offering on your part, do you think he's going to receive any of you kindly? Have you ever thought that our gifts reveal what we value? The gifts we give reveal what we value? You know, you don't buy your daughter's wedding gift at a flea market. Generally. <laughs> Amy? Amy, I'll give you some duct tape. Yeah, I... <laughs> If you get something that looks like a flea market on it, you come talk to me. You know? <clears throat> yeah, I know. You generally don't propose marriage with a ring that you get out of a vending machine. I mean, generally. Some of you, I'm not so sure about. I was going to say a cereals box, and I thought, well, that's kind of dating us. You know, I was a little old, you know, at that point in time. So the priests gave God the junk. They gave him the throwaways. They gave him the stuff that no one else wanted. Right? And they expected him to be happy about it. I read a story about how people give their used stuff to missionaries. One little old church lady actually dried out her used tea bags, packaged them up, and sent them to missionaries. Used tea bags. That's like giving away used toothbrushes. You know, some things you just ought to throw away, right? When you give stuff away like that, what you're saying about the person, I don't value you. I don't value you at all because I'm giving you the junk. Here's the hard truth. God gets a lot of our leftovers, doesn't he? You know, we give God, not you, None of you here, I know. Oh, those other people, give God leftover time. You know, God gets two hours a week max if I can get out of bed. If I can't, oh well. Leftover money. Many, many, many Christians give God the spare change. What I mean is they give God after I buy what I want. If there's anything left, God might get it. Might. I don't spend in that Starbucks on the way to church. Leftover energy. We give God leftover energy. <clears throat> Might think about God before I go to sleep, but in the mornings I get up with just enough time to get dressed and get to work. God is going to have to wait till I get done with my agenda today. And then we'll, we'll, we'll talk later, right? God later. We give God our leftover attention. Even when people are in church... You know what they're doing? Don't you see? You notice? Their smartphones have them enslaved. I'm about ready to put a reward out for a hundred bucks for anybody who will give me their smartphone. They don't have a spare and lock it up in my safe for a couple days. I'd be interested to see if anybody could do it for 48 hours. It's like you go to Starbucks in the morning. If you go by there early, people are just shaking. They need my coffee. Same thing. Got to have my smartphone, right? You know when we pay attention to God's voice, 
We call God up whenever we're in trouble. When we're not in trouble, not so much. Our conversations with God are usually short, right? Say yes. Because we're in a hurry to get on with our agenda. When we have a conversation with God, who does all the talking? We do all the talking, right? And we expect God to show some manners and not interrupt us until we're done, right? As soon as we're done talking, we hang up the phone because we got an agenda to do, right? We're busy. We don't ever want God to interrupt us, but he better let us interrupt him 24 by 7 because that's his job. Voltaire said, of course God's going to forgive me. That's his job, which means he works for me. We want to use God to get what we want, not to love God for who he is. You know, how do you, when you get treated like that by people, how do you, how do you feel? It feels pretty rotten, doesn't it? They just want to use me for what they can get. They don't love me for who I am. You all have, most of you have children and grandchildren. You know what we crave? We want, we want a relationship with the people we love, right? We want our children and grandchildren to love us for who we are, and we want to love them for who they are, not just because of the stuff we can give them at that point. God is a father, and he wants a relationship with us just like you want a relationship with your kids and your grandkids. God loved us enough to give us his best. His best. Not his throwaways. His best, his only begotten son, his only beloved son. God, above all else, deserves our honor and our love. You know someone who got that was Mary of Bethany. What did Mary of Bethany do? She spent a year's wages, one year's wages, and she did what? She wasted it, right? She took a year's wages, she buys an alabaster bottle of very, very expensive ointment. I mean, this stuff came by the Silk Road from India. The transportation costs on this stuff were very, very expensive. And she broke it over Jesus' feet. And the disciples were horrified. Unbelievable. I mean, come on. You could, buy, you could fed a lot of poor with that. And Jesus said, no, 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 she's preparing my body for burial. She spent the money on the right stuff because she valued Jesus more than a year's wages. And the average Christian gives about 1.7% of their income per year. Really? And this is the Jesus we're going to go to heaven and say, man, I, you're my treasure, baby, 1.7%, man. And you're lucky to get that because the credit card's pretty high this month. I mean, Malachi's in their face. So I'm in your face, right? I didn't read this. The Holy Spirit's been in my face all week, so I'm just passing it off, folks. I love you. I do love you. So God is so hurt by their indifference, he says in verse 10. Oh, that there was one among you who had just shut the gates to the temple, that you might not uselessly kindle fire on my altar. I am not pleased with you, says the Lord of hosts, nor will I accepting an offering from you. Here's the principle. Get real and stop pretending. Either God gets your best or you are saying that he only deserves your leftovers. I wrote that down. I said, Lord, I don't know if I want to say that. But it's really true. 
because we say, Jesus, I love you. I appreciate your dying for my sins. I'm trusting my whole eternity to you, but I'm treating you by giving my leftovers now. Really? Doesn't add up, right? There's an inconsistency there. God says to them, you are doing this temple worship stuff for show. I know your hearts are not in it. You say you love me, but when I look at your behavior, I don't buy it because your behavior is opposite. You know what we call that in, in contemporary parlance? We call that passive-aggressive behavior. Do you know anybody that's passive-aggressive? Ever experienced any passive? You ever been passive-aggressive? None of you. Oh, you're just aggressive, right? Just, I mean, I just tell it straight up, Brad, right? Here's the best definition of passive-aggressive behavior. Your dog licks your hand and at the same time wets your feet. That's passive-aggressive. Your dog licks your hand and wets on your feet at the same time. We do this to God all the time. We say, you're the best, you're the best, but I have no intention of obeying you. Right? In the old Soviet Union, the workers used to have a saying, they pretend to pay us, and we pretend to work. <laughs> yeah, it's kind of phony, right? Life doesn't work too well that way. Um, God is, uh, in fact, the king overall, and God deserves our best. Verse 11, God is saying, For from the rising of the sun, even to the setting of the sun, my name will be great among the nations. And in every place incense is going to be offered to my name and a grain offering that is pure for, second time, my name will be great among what? You know what the nations means? The entire world. The Gentiles. The entire world. God's name will be great. The day is coming. Verse 12. But you are profaning my name in that you say the table of the Lord is defiled and as for its fruit, its food is to be despised. God says... The day is going to come when the entire world honors every knee will bow, acknowledges me as king, and you treat me like secondhand lion. Malachi uses the title, the Lord of hosts, 24 times in this book. He says, the Lord of armies. God has an angelic army at his disposal, and he holds trillions of stars in his hands, and the day is coming when everyone on planet Earth will honor God's ownership and God's authority, and yet... You Israelites treat me with contempt. When he says you profane my name, profane means to desecrate. It means to treat with irreverence or disrespect, very strong disrespect. And when you says defile my table, it means to spoil it, to degrade it, to debase it. It's interesting. Did you know, as Americans, we probably don't know this, but in royal etiquette, no one is allowed to touch the queen. We Americans kind of overdo that. Uh, LeBron James got written up because he put his arm around the Duchess when they were doing something here a few months ago. But royal etiquette says you don't even shake hands with the queen until what? They extend their hand to you. And yet this is the king of kings, and he says you are trashing my holy name. You're disrespecting. And he says, one of the primary ways you're disrespecting me in verse 13 is, you are bored in my presence. You are bored in my presence. How many of you saw the news this week? I thought this was interesting. The number two or number three advisor to the North Korean premier was executed by anti-aircraft fire for being caught napping. 
at a public event. The premier, this 28-year-old overweight premier of North Korea, doesn't like people being bored in his presence. If you nap in his presence, they put you out in the gun range, literally an aircraft range, and they take you out. And they can't find the pieces when an aircraft round gets done with you, right? So the king says, our king says in verse 13, you, you, dis, you, dis, you disrespect me by being bored in my presence, verse 13. And you also say, how tiresome it is. And how you disdainfully sniff at the offering, says the Lord of hosts, and you bring in to me what was taken by robbery. That means you go stick up a 7-Eleven and bring the money and you put it in the offering plate on Sunday morning. That's what he's saying, right? And what is lame or sick, so you bring the offering. Shall I receive that from your hand, the Lord of hosts says. They were disrespecting God because they were bored with worshiping. I've been in conversations with people you have two, where it's obvious that they're bored out of their mind talking with me, right? They're looking over your shoulder, hoping somebody will catch their eye so they can leave, right? Some people are not very good hiders at that. They're just obviously bored, right? That's when you want to get a bucket of water and anyway. They're just going through the motions with you, and you know that. Here's the principle. If you are, if worshiping God bores you, then you are not really in his presence. If, I, I'm fairly convinced that when we get to heaven, nobody will be napping. Thought about that? I don't think any of you are going to have to take no-dos when you get to heaven. There's no pro-vigil to try and stay awake. I think when you're in the presence of the king of kings, you will be riveted. And you will experience so much joy, you will not be able to contain it without praising him. If you are bored in worship, I want to tell you, something has distracted you from paying attention. And unfortunately, for most of us, being distracted in worship is normal. It's normal. We're used to it. One of the things I'm very convicted about is that if I go on automatic pilot, I will sing the songs mindlessly. You ever sang the songs and not paid attention to what you were singing? Do you know when you sing those songs, you're making some pretty radical commitments? I surrender all. I mean, we just wail through three verses, the I surrender all. Really? I don't think we surrender all. You know how I know? Because what happens when he touches my job? What happens when he touches my kids? What happens when he touches my grandkids? What happens when he touches my health? What happens when that schmuck cuts me off in the street and I get in a fender bender? I surrender that? What happens when I get an idiot that I work for? Or an idiot who works for me? I surrender that? Am I willing to be godly in those situations? Boredom in worship can be really dangerous. Nadab and Abihu, the two oldest sons of Aaron, the priests, they were going to go worship God. And God said, when you bring and burn an offering on my altar, you can only use divine fire. That's the fire that came down from heaven to light the altar in the first place. And they kept that fire burning 24 by 7. That's sacred fire. You can use that to burn an offering to me. 
And Nadab and Abihu said, yeah, yeah, it's just fire. Let's get my Bic lighter over here and we'll start. And they did. They started a fire, not from that fire. And they came into the presence of God to offer an offering and they were casual about their worship. And what did God do? They burned him up. Struck him dead. When you come in the presence of holy God, don't be bored. Don't be bored, right? Pay attention. When you start speaking those words, pay attention. What's coming out of your mouth? I'm amazed the number of people that come into God's house with absolutely no prep. They don't even ask God to open their minds so they'll understand what they're saying. Right? You know, um, in this period we're reading about, you brought an animal and you dragged it with you when you went to worship. I, I think that's a good mental picture. I, I come into worship, Lord, what am I bringing you today? I'm bringing you my praise, I'm bringing you my attention. you, you got to gear up that way, otherwise you do go into autopilot. You know what we hear all the time? I don't go to church because I don't get nothing out of it. What did you bring to it? If you don't even bring your attention to it, what are you going to get out of it? Nothing. Of course not, right? Unfortunately, God is available to us 24 by 7. I say unfortunately because it's easy to assume if I don't pay attention now, when I come back, he'll be there. And it's true, he will. He's a loving Father who watches us 24 by 7, he's always available. But how much are we missing out on? Worshiping God here on earth should be a little taste of heaven. You should walk out of that worship service filled. That's the intent. He doesn't want you to walk out less than. He wants you to walk out having a divine encounter. When you have an encounter with a living God, believe me, you are not going to be bored. You're going to be transformed. That's the intent. God wants you to worship him so he can give you himself, for crying out loud. Verse 14. But cursed be the swindler who has a male in his flock and vows it, means they promise it, but sacrifices a blemished animal to the Lord, for I am a great king, says the Lord of hosts, and my name is feared among the nations. So these people were promising God a perfect lamb, but then they sold the good one and gave God the junk. And they thought God wouldn't care. You know who's a good example of that? Ananias and Sapphira. Remember them? They were real estate speculators. They had a chunk of dirt, and they were going to sell their real estate investment, but they valued God on the cheap, right? They viewed God like a Kmart blue light special. You only buy it at a 50% discount, right? They, they wanted God's approval, but only at a 50% discount. So they, they were spiritual swindlers. They told God, they told everybody, including God, they were going to give them 100% of the proceeds of this real estate investment trust sale, right? So they sold the real estate, and they decided they were going to keep back a chunk of it for themselves, but they told everybody else and God they were given the whole thing. They valued the praise of money... Because money will buy you praise, folks. And the praise of men more than the praise of God. They said, God, you're worth about a 50% discount. That's what you're worth. The right attitude really is found in an old spiritual title, Give Me Jesus. If you ever heard a black choir sing this, it'll raise your hair on the back of your neck. 
first verse. In the morning, when I rise, give me Jesus. Doesn't say give me Starbucks. Doesn't say give me a good commute. It says the first thing in the morning, give me Jesus. When I am alone, don't turn on the iPad. Don't go Facebooking. When I am alone, what's first up? Give me Jesus. When I come to die, and we're all going to come to die, there is a date with your name on it. Give me Jesus. You can have all this world. Give me Jesus. You know, the reality is, you are going to leave everything here. We're just talking when. All the stuff we think is so valuable here, when you come to die, Jesus is all you have because all this stuff is staying here and you are going to be glad to be rid of it. Right? So why not practice today? Okay, let's review. Key idea. God deserves our best because of who he is. If we have trouble giving God our best, you know what we're saying? I don't know you very well because I'm undervaluing you. The more you know him, the more giving your best. And I'm not just talking about money. I mean your heart, your attention. The more you know him, the more you want to give him because the more he has of you, the more you experience of him. Verse Second point, never confuse God's love with getting your own way. God loves you more than you love you. Third point, when you give God what costs you little or nothing, you are telling God that he is worth little or nothing. Point four, get real and stop pretending. Either God gets your best or else you're saying that he only deserves your leftovers. Last point, if worshiping God bores you, then you are not really in his presence. By the way, that's a pretty good litmus test. If you're worshiping and you're bored, that's, that's, that's good diagnostic. You say, I, I'm, I'm not here. My attention is somewhere else. I need to bring my attention back to the king, back to the king, back to the king. Okay, uh, we have two more lessons in Malachi. Uh, Lord willing, by uh, June, we will start the book of Revelation. So... I do love you, and Jesus loves you more than I love you. Now that you know, 